You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This morning, the scripture reading is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 7, verse 37, and we'll continue to verse 11 of chapter 8. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and he was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him? to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The text for the sermon is found in John 8, verses 1 through 11, which we have read together already. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the text which we have before us this morning is well known in the church for at least two reasons. The first is a sentence spoken by the Lord Jesus, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. 
That may well be one of the most familiar lines spoken by our Lord Jesus in the whole Bible. They are among the most used, or I may say perhaps also misused words in the whole Bible. Maybe it's happened to you at some point in your life that when you were trying to take a strong stand on some moral issue within our society today that someone tried to shut you down with the words, but let him who was without sin cast the first stone. It's kind of a shut-down passage. It shuts down the ability of people to criticize, to make judgments, to have strong opinions. That's one reason why this is a familiar passage. The second reason our text is well known is due to the question of whether or not it actually belongs in the Bible. Some Bibles, as you may know, print this passage, John 8, verses 1 through 11, in a footnote. Others print it in the regular column of the text of the Bible, but add a note somewhere that this is a disputed passage. However, I put it to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that these words which we have read in John 8 are indeed the Word of God. They are indeed part of Holy Scripture. They are part of the inspired message of the Holy Spirit. We know that because some very old manuscripts of the New Testament going all the way back to the 4th century do indeed include this passage. And also the vast majority of more recent manuscripts going back to medieval times and beyond also do include this part in their manuscripts. Might also mention for your benefit this morning that this passage, John 8 verse 1 through 11, was accepted as fully authentic by several of the church fathers, including men like Augustine and Jerome. And especially Jerome is an important witness because Jerome was a famous translator of the Bible. He was the man who for the first time translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And his translation in time became known as the Vulgate. So his authority speaks highly to the integrity of this passage. Now, it is also true, of course, that some ancient texts, some very ancient texts, even some of the oldest manuscripts we have of the New Testament, do not have this passage. And that is surprising, and that is puzzling. That is a problem for biblical scholars to think about. As I hope to show you, though, later this morning, there is a more plausible historical reason to believe that this passage was removed at a later date than to suppose that it was added at a later date. More on that when we come to the second point of the sermon. And so we may assume this morning together that this passage, John 8, verses 1 through 11, is fully biblical, and we may learn from it, as with so many other parts of Scripture's, the wonders of God's grace. And so I would like to bring the gospel to you with the theme this morning, The Lord Jesus Christ shows us that he came not to judge, but to save. The Lord Jesus Christ came not to judge, but to save. And we will see in the first place how hypocrisy is exposed, and secondly, how mercy for sinners is revealed. First, then, hypocrisy is exposed by the Lord. Chapter 7 of John's Gospel tells us what happened during the Feast of Tabernacles, or as it's also known, the Feast of Booths. The Lord Jesus had come from the north, from Galilee to Judea to Jerusalem, to participate in this important Jewish festival 
But when he came, he was immediately embroiled in a series of controversies with the Jewish leaders. We find out in chapter 7 that the Jewish leaders were hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ for at least two reasons. They were hostile to him in the first place because of what he did. He did amazing things. They couldn't deny that, but he did them at the wrong time, and he did them in the wrong way. And especially he did them on the Sabbath, which was for the Pharisees a terrible sin. They were hostile to him not only because of what he did, however. They were hostile, even more hostile, doubly hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he said. And what did he say? He said in his conversations with them that he was one sent by his Father in heaven. He said to them astounding things such as that he was from above. They were from below, but he was from above. In every way, the Lord Jesus manifested a powerful claim that he was not an ordinary human being, that he was a unique individual, a unique person, one indeed who could rightly claim equality with God the Father. And so we read already at the beginning of chapter 7 that the Jewish leaders were looking to kill him. They weren't just against him. They weren't simply trying to silence him for a while or get him to go back to Galilee. No, their hostility had had come to that point where they had decided that the only thing to do with this Jesus was to eliminate him so that he could no longer influence the people, so that he could no longer lead people away from the authority of the Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law. And so the last events of chapter 7 end with a failed attempt on the part of the Jewish leaders to arrest Jesus. But now it is morning. Likely it's the last morning of the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus has spent the evening, the night, on the Mount of Olives, probably on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, which was where the village of Bethany was located, right on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And we know from the other Gospels that this is where Jesus liked to go at night, to be with his friends, to have a reprieve, to find his refreshment. And so the Lord has been refreshed, and now he's back in the temple, doing what he came to do, teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. John says in the opening verses of this chapter that all the people went to him, and all were being taught by him. He doesn't mean, of course, every single Israelite was there, but he means that a, a mighty throng of people was present in the temple and were gladly listening to this great prophet and teacher proclaim the word of God to them. But suddenly, the lesson that the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching about the kingdom of God is rudely interrupted. Scribes and Pharisees suddenly arrive in the temple courts and they demand the attention of Jesus. They don't wait for him to finish his teaching. They walk right in and rudely interrupt what he's doing and they demand his attention. And with them they have a woman. The leaders of the Jews state to Jesus that this woman has been caught in adultery. They know that she's guilty, they say, not simply because someone has accused her. They know that she's guilty because she's been caught in the act. And so there she is before the Lord Jesus, surrounded by the Jewish leaders who were also the Supreme Court of Israel. They form a circle around her. And we can only imagine this poor woman's feelings, 
feelings of humiliation, feelings of shame, compounded by perhaps a terrible fear that this might very well be the last day of her life. But now the question is, why have they brought her to Jesus? Why to the temple courts? If this woman has committed a crime, aren't there courts for that kind of thing? Aren't there courts with proper protocols, courts with proper rules of evidence, courts where you have to present witnesses, courts where you may also defend yourself? Jesus isn't the judge, is he? And this certainly isn't the courtroom. No, this is a teaching room in the temple of God. And so we suspect immediately that they, they have some ulterior motive. They're not interested simply in justice. They're not interested simply in protecting families and marriages within Israel. They have some kind of ulterior motive. And we see how this is true when we listen to what they actually say to Jesus. They have a question for the Lord Jesus. They say, Jesus, Moses says about adulterers that they should be put to death. And that was, in fact, of course, true. The law of Moses, as you know, prescribed capital punishment for quite a range of offenses. Not only adultery, but you could, you could argue that the law of Moses prescribes a death penalty in one way or the other for, for all sins against the Ten Commandments. You can take any one of the Ten Commandments and you will find somewhere in the Torah an application of that commandment that results in capital punishment. Idolatry, for example, could be Punished by death, so could the making of images, so could abusing your parents, reviling those in authority over you, and so on. And so, yes, the law of Moses did prescribe, in certain situations, capital punishment for the sin of adultery. And those severe penalties of the law showed how much God hated sin, how sin makes God's people unworthy of his presence. It makes them worthy of the judgment of death. And so what Moses said about adultery is really clear enough. But the question for Jesus now is, Jesus, what do you say about this woman? What should be done with her? Now, as we watch what's going on here in our mind's eyes, we may well have a number of questions for these esteemed Jewish leaders. In the first place, we remind ourselves that the law of Moses prescribed capital punishment not only for the woman, but also for the man who was caught in the act of adultery. And so the question we might have to begin with is, where's the man? If this woman's been caught in adultery, then surely the identity of her partner in sin is also known. And so where is he? Something doesn't smell right about this whole situation. And the smell gets worse in verse 6 where the Gospel writer tells us that these Jewish leaders were, in fact, looking for an opportunity to accuse Jesus. In other words, brothers and sisters, this is not a genuine question on the part of these men. They're not really looking to be edified. They're not looking to find how Jesus would, in the best way, apply the law of God. In fact, these men aren't really concerned about this woman's sin at all in itself. No, they were not ready to learn anything from Jesus. There was only one goal, and that was to trap the Lord. They were using this poor woman for their own purposes, which can be described as political and not spiritual at all. 
But what exactly then was the trap which they had laid for the Lord Jesus? Well, they felt, I think, that no matter what the Lord Jesus said in answer to the question, he would condemn himself. If the Lord Jesus said to these Pharisees before many witnesses, do not put her to death, then they could obviously accuse him of going against Moses. And you know, that was about the worst thing you could do in Israel because the law of Moses was like the constitution of the whole country. And to attack the constitution, well, that's to attack everything. And it would give them a glorious opportunity to move in for the kill. If Jesus would just boldly say, I don't agree with Moses, well, that would be the end of Jesus right there and then. On the other hand, if the Lord Jesus had said, yes, she should be put to death, if the Lord had agreed that the proper penalty in this case would be to execute this woman, well, then that also would have had negative repercussions because then it would have called into question the mercy for which the Lord Jesus had become justly famous. Remember from the Synoptic Gospels how the Lord Jesus Christ was frequently described as the friend of tax collectors, the friend of sinners, sinners just like this woman. And we know from the Gospel of Luke and Matthew and Mark that the Lord Jesus Christ was famous in Galilee. He was famous in Judea for having dinner parties with people of ill repute. He was always spending time, it seemed, with the wrong kind of crowd. And this was the very thing that brought his reputation into grave doubt among the esteemed leaders of the people of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. Wasn't Jesus, after all, the person who had allowed his feet to be washed by the tears of a sinful woman who clearly had been involved in some kind of sexual sin and had the name of being a sinner? Well, the Lord Jesus loved sinners and the Lord Jesus was not ashamed to have that woman make his feet wet with her tears. And moreover, did the Lord Jesus Christ not say repeatedly in his preaching of the kingdom that he had come precisely to seek and to save what was lost? That he had come not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Well, if the Lord now, with this clever question of the scribes and Pharisees, fell into their trap, and if he said, yes, this woman deserves condemnation, proceed with her execution, then the Lord would, by that very fact, lose all credibility as the friend of sinners and tax collectors. And the people would no longer follow him. And you see, that's what the Jewish leaders were, above all, concerned about. They were concerned about power. They were concerned about control, as religious leaders often have been concerned in history. And they saw the Lord Jesus Christ as a terrible threat to their power, their control over Israel. And so they wanted to separate the Lord Jesus from the affection of the crabs. A clever setup, you must, you must agree, they placed before the Lord Jesus. How will he respond to this trap? Well, amazingly, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't respond at all. At least he doesn't say anything with his mouth. He doesn't speak any words of wisdom. Instead, says the Gospel writer, he, he bent down. It was as if he was deliberately ignoring them, not looking at them. He bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, what did he write? Well, if you read the commentaries, 
there is no end of speculation about the things that the Lord Jesus Christ might have written. But the truth is, we do not know what he wrote because it hasn't been recorded for us by the Spirit of God and probably we should stop guessing because at the end of the day, we don't know what he wrote. And yet, apart from the content of his writing, it would be good for us to focus for a moment simply on the fact of his writing, the fact that he wrote. And it says specifically that he wrote with his finger. Well, when we hear about the Lord Jesus writing with his finger on the ground, that makes us think about other instances in the Bible when we hear about people writing with their finger. And I'm thinking in particular particular of God himself. We read in the book of Exodus that God wrote with his own finger. That's the expression used. God wrote with his own finger the tablets of the law. The Ten Commandments were inscribed, as it were, in the wet clay of of the tablet by the finger of the divine author himself. And perhaps it makes us think also of an amazing event that happened in in the book of Daniel. You remember in Daniel 5, King Belshazzar was having a dinner party, and he was boasting about his empire, boasting about his accomplishments, and then suddenly his knees felt like rubber because he saw on the wall of the banquet room the fingers of a man's hand writing, writing what turned out to be, after Daniel explained it, everyone understood, writing words of judgment, writing a divine indictment against Belshazzar and his secular kingdom of power and glory and human vanity. God writes his own law with his own finger. God writes judgments based on that law with his own finger. And so we may well presume, I think, that in one way or the other, the Lord Jesus Christ, by writing with his finger, was expressing the judgment of God upon the words and the behavior and the accusations, not of this woman surrounded by these men of power, but God's indictment of these religious leaders. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, as John tells us in chapter 1. And just as God the Father wrote the tablets of the law with his own finger, Jesus writes the sentence with his own finger based on that law of God. It's a remarkable thing, then, that happens in this passage. These people have come to Jesus asking him to pass sentence upon her, the woman, in their midst. The Lord Jesus won't do that. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ will pass sentence on them. He will pass sentence on them because of the darkness that is in their hearts and because of their stubborn resistance to the message of grace that Jesus proclaimed. When the Jewish leaders continue to prod the Lord for an answer, he looks up for a moment and he spoke just one line. And this is what he said. Let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And then the Lord Jesus looked down at the ground again and wrote with his finger as if to say, I'm done with you people now. Don't bother me anymore. I've said my last word to you. And so the message is very clear. I have pronounced judgment, Jesus indicates, but not judgment on this woman. I have pronounced judgment on you. Well, what are we to make of that statement of the Lord? Is the Lord saying here, people of God, that 
You can never bring accusations against someone if you yourself are not morally perfect. For example, may I not confront a neighbor about a lie he's just told about me because I also once long ago told a lie? And am I not allowed to accuse my neighbor of theft because I myself may have once felt the power of greed? Is that what Jesus is saying here, that you need to be morally flawless in order to ever pass a sentence, pass a judgment, make a distinction in law? You know, that that really wouldn't make any sense because that would paralyze the whole administration of justice in the secular world. It would also paralyze the whole process of church discipline. It would paralyze the whole work we were called to do of admonishing each other, of correcting one another, and of calling each other to account. But what Jesus does mean, I think, is this. If you, if you are yourself an adulterer, for example, and then come seeking the condemnation of another adulterer who happens to have less status than you, less power than you, less ability to control his or her own destiny than you do, then you are a hypocrite. And the Lord Jesus Christ won't deal with hypocrites. And so what the Lord Jesus Christ is showing us here, brothers and sisters, is his divine knowledge of what lives in the hearts of these accusers. They portray themselves as men of righteousness. They portray themselves as people who are qualified to judge. But the Lord has looked into their hearts, and what the Lord sees in their hearts is moral and spiritual darkness. He knows with his divine insight that these accusers are guilty of adultery. They're not guilty simply of what we would call lust today. They're not guilty simply of impure desires. But these men are actually guilty of the very sin of which they are accusing this woman, which is the sin of adultery. Now, that may seem incredible to you, that these religious leaders would be caught up in that kind of sin. But we know from other places that immorality was rampant among the Jewish people at this time and that it also extended into the ranks of the Sanhedrin, that these men of power and influence could pretty much get what they wanted whenever they wanted it. We might even speculate here a moment, if you'll indulge me, and think about the real possibility that these men who are presenting this woman as a sinner have somehow themselves been involved in her sin, that just as they are now seeking to trap Jesus, they have also previously entrapped this woman. They have trapped her deliberately in sexual sin in order to use her against Jesus. For powerful men like them, it wouldn't have been a hard thing to do. And considering how much they hated Jesus and how determined they were to bring him down, it's not unimaginable that they would go to this length. No wonder then that the Lord Jesus Christ writes down with his finger on the ground the sentence of God upon them. Their hypocrisy, congregation, shows that these men don't really love God. They don't really revere God's law. And they're not really concerned about justice in Israel. No, power, influence, these are the things that have become their gods and these are the things that they are seeking to protect over against the Lord Jesus and his message of grace, which threatens to sabotage everything that they have built up so carefully for so long. 
And I wonder then that the Pharisees and scribes now slither away in shame, like the snakes they are. Remember how the Lord Jesus, or John the Baptist rather, when he first saw the Pharisees coming to him said, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath of God. Well, here they are, these vipers, exposed by the Lord Jesus Christ in their poisonous attack on God's grace, and they slither away in shame and confusion. They have felt the indictment of Christ. They have felt the veracity of his accusation. Their consciences accuse them. And instead of going to Jesus in repentance, they leave. They won't go to the light, lest the light further expose their hearts that are dark. We've seen then how the Lord Jesus exposes hypocrisy. But now the hypocrites are gone, and there's just Jesus and this woman. And so we come to our second point, how this text also displays Christ's mercy. The Lord Jesus' congregation asked this woman in this difficult position a question. The question is, who are or where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the answer comes from her trembling lips, no, Lord. And then Christ speaks those words that are so rich in comfort, so rich in encouragement for all sinners. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on. Sin no more. Notice from these beautiful words, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ does not make light of this woman's sin. He says, go and sin no more. What she did was sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ does not in any way make light of it. It's sinful, it's real, it's wrong, and it does deserve judgment. Indeed, under Moses, it deserved death. And yet, even while recognizing the sin, even while in no way diminishing the horror of her sin, the Lord Jesus Christ does not condemn. He does not pronounce a sentence. He doesn't say, for example, that she should go and turn herself into the authorities. No, there is instead a word from the Lord that sets this woman free. Go, go to your home, take up your life, and sin no more. Her life can go on because she is not condemned. Now, why does the Lord Jesus Christ here clearly speak a language that is different than the language of the law of Moses? Well, the answer is, obviously, this woman is not condemned because the Lord Jesus Christ has come to this world in the fullness of time, in fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He has come to be condemned in her place. She is not condemned, congregation, because the Lord Jesus Christ takes on himself the full force of God's condemnation of her conduct. The curse of the law, the capital punishment, the eternal punishment which she and all the people of God deserve will be laid on him. This woman is not condemned because, as John has told us already in chapter 1, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Christ's words do indeed point to a new time. Christ's words point to a new era. They point forward to that time when Israel will no longer be under Moses. 
no longer bound by the ceremonies and rituals and regulations of the Mosaic Code. These words of Jesus Christ point to the time when Israel will no longer be under law, but will be under grace, under the full grace of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. These words of Jesus Christ point to the full, the complete, absolute forgiveness of all sin that God imparts to those who have faith in the one God has sent, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you study the history of exegesis of this passage, as I've had to do in the last couple of weeks when I preached on it first in Aldergrove, you notice that many people in the early centuries of the church felt very threatened by this passage. Some of the early church fathers had very strict and severe views about sexual sin. Several of the church fathers even made the remarkable statement that there was no forgiveness of sin for sexual sin committed after baptism. If you had been living a pagan life and you came to the faith and you were baptized, then all your sin was washed away, including your sexual sin. But if you sinned sexually after baptism, they said, there was no forgiveness for that. And indeed, it happened in various places in the ancient church that people who committed such sins were excluded from the community of believers for good. Now, we ridicule such views, and in a way they deserve to be ridiculed. But on the other hand, we should not forget either that the environment in which the early church was taking root was an environment of extreme sexual depravity. It was very difficult for the community of faith to survive as pure people of God in such, a, such an environment. And because of that environment, the church fathers, many of them, took a very rigid, austere view about sexual sin. However, their view was deviant. Their view was wrong. And it became even more wrong when, as we also learn from the history of exegesis, when it led them to discourage the public reading and teaching of this passage. For example, when the Bible was divided in the early church into weekly readings for the Lord's Day in, in the so-called lectionary of the early church, there was a very specific attempt made to exclude this passage, John 8, verses 1 through 11. In fact, there's, there's even a manuscript out there that has a little note in the sidebar beside John 8, verses 1 through 11 that says, do not read. In other words, this was not a passage that was to be read in public worship because of the fear that such a passage with its magnificent communication of God's divine forgiveness would somehow encourage people to be sinful. It would give room for sinful conduct because after all, there is such abundant forgiveness available. Well, once they began to discourage the teaching and reading of this passage of Holy Scripture, it was inevitable that somebody would one day decide to not include it in their copy of the Bible. And once that decision was made, other copies were made of that copy, and eventually a whole tradition of manuscripts developed which didn't have this text in it. But of course, the church fathers were, were wrong, weren't they? Because we can see that these words of the Lord Jesus Christ would in no way encourage anyone to sin. When the Lord Jesus Christ says to this woman 
go and sin no more. How in the world could that ever be construed as some kind of an incitement or permission for further sin? Is it true that this passage makes us think, God is so merciful, God is so amazingly merciful that I can do whatever I want? No, on the contrary, this passage, when understood well, does exactly the opposite. Brothers and sisters, do you know what really brings change to your lives? If you think about your life, what what are the forces that have brought change about in your life? Maybe there's been some kind of recent crucial development in your life towards greater sanctification, greater conformity to the will of God. And now ask the question, what was it that brought you to that greater conformity to the will of God, that greater love for the will of God? Was it the knowledge that sin will be punished ever so severely? I would put it to you that that's not the sort of thing that in itself will bring lasting change to your life. You may control people for a while with strict penalties, severe condemnations, That may control people's behavior for a time. You can control children's behavior like that for a time if you want to. You can just use force, brute force, the force of law, the force of regulation, the the threat of judgment. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really change children, does it? It doesn't really touch their hearts. It doesn't make them new. No, what really puts new life into the people of God is the knowledge that they have been forgiven. The most transforming thing that a human being can ever hear, the one thing that will drive them to renewed joy, renewed zeal, renewed devotion to doing God's will, is to hear from the lips of the Savior, My child, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yes, when you know that despite your many sins, God has forgiven you freely and fully, For Christ's sake, that is a thing that fires up love in your heart. And that is a thing that makes it possible for you to do the will of God. We don't know what happened to this woman in the story. We don't hear about her anymore. The gospel goes on to focus on other things. We may have questions. Did she continue in her way of sin? Was this a radical turning point for her? We do not know, but we do know that the Lord Jesus Christ gave her the greatest possible incentive to break with her sin when he told her that he did not condemn her and promised her forgiveness. If she accepted that mercy of our Lord and Savior, then her life would be forever different. Mercy would move her from misery to joy, from disobedience to transformation, from the pursuit of sin to pursuing what is good and holy and pure and just. So we've seen this morning that the Son of Man did not come to judge. He came to this world to save. He came to Israel to save Israel. He came to this world to save you who live here in this time and in this place. He came to save what was lost in sin. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because we also know that the Son of God is coming again. And every Sunday afternoon we profess our faith about Him and we say, 
He is coming again from heaven to judge the living and the dead. And for us who are here this morning, brothers and sisters, the standard of Christ's judgment will be this. The standard will be, what have you done, boys and girls? What have you done, young people? What have you done, congregation, with the proclamation of the full and complete forgiveness of all your sins? Have you received that message into your spirits? And have you allowed that message to transform you from the inside out by the power of God? Or could it be that some of us are walking away from that message, as did many of the scribes and Pharisees, wrapped up as they were with their religion of rules and regulations? For us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, for us who receive the proclamation of the full and complete forgiveness of all our sins, then the coming day of the Lord Jesus Christ will be, indeed, a day of gladness, a day of meeting our Savior. But for those who keep the Lamb at arm's length, for those who don't want to live by grace, but who want to keep going by their own effort, living by their own rules, by their own regulations, for them there remains one thing, and that is what the Bible calls the wrath of the Lamb. And so may this passage which we've read this morning, may it prod us, people of God, may it push us, may it encourage us to renewed faith in the Lord Jesus. And with that renewed faith, may it bring about in our lives growing godliness. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.